Hello and welcome to You Me and the Economy. A place for news views and all that is happening in the arena of finance and economy. Curated by the Center for Financial Accountability. Hello. This episode of You Me and the Economy is part 5 and also the final one in the series produced in collaboration with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. In this episode, you'll be listening to Shalini Bhutani, an independent legal researcher and policy analyst who has done extensive work on the impacts of free trade agreements. In this episode, Shalini will give us an overview of the free trade agreements and where is India at on the FTA front, basically presenting a balance sheet on issues and concerns regarding FTAs. Salam namaste and hello everyone. I would like to start telling the story uh, even a little before 1995 which is uh, the birth year of the World Trade Organization the nature of these trade and investment agreements and the kind of protections uh, that governments and are willing to give to the corporations behind uh, these trade agreements i think is very very important to understand and to also piece the different uh, pieces of the jigsaw together to see what kind of impacts they are uh, in terms of the dichotomies inherently the trading system uh, is based on what how the developed and the developing world can engage with each other but the fundamental thing is that they both are essentially different or opposed or entirely at different stages of development as well and therefore they cannot be treated equally i think that's a fundamental principle for law and justice that you cannot treat uh unequal partners equally and that is something that we need to also look into on how are in the garb of trying to bring everybody to a level playing field and that was the attempt of uh, the wto to bring everybody to the same negotiating table to set up a framework of international trade rules uh, is that being fair to the developing world as well as to the least developed countries as you may know in the world trade organization today um, there are 164 countries that are members officially apart from the observer countries etc or those in the process of joining the wto still the majority of these countries are developing countries but as you know because of the economic clout and the political clout that uh, the developed world has they are able to and particularly given that uh, there is really the corporate agenda and corporate control um, that is being taken forward with these trade agreements that many of these rules are inherently uh, playing against the interests of the developing world and that's why our struggles at these ministerial conferences and uh, also outside of that because uh, the corporations and the developed countries are not content with the pace at which negotiations are happening at the wto and also with the extent of how there is a resistance to adding new uh, subjects and topics to be covered under global trade rules uh, 
over and above what are called the traditional issues and sectors that have been uh, addressed in the WTO agreements. And that's why to, with the most expansionist agenda, governments are now looking at intergovernmental relations on trade and uh, investment outside the WTO. Interestingly, the rationale that was given for setting up the World Trade Organization and even its predecessor, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was set up in 1948. And I think it's important to look at that here because India got its political independence in 1947, uh, which means we, were, we hadn't even made the constitution of India then. And in 1948, we had already signed up to the GATT, which is the Global Agreement on, on Trade. Uh, and it's only subsequently in 1950 that we have the Constitution of India. So you can say that we got uh, political independence, but in terms of economic independence and what kind of domestic policies we would like to design for a newly found republic, I think a lot of that is also prescribed by the, the global trade agreement and what our policies uh, and trade uh, rules and acts and regulations look like today. So it's important to trace that to the Constitution of India because we will also look at process questions and issues of how trade treaties are negotiated and whether they can be actually constitutionally challenged uh, going against both democratic principles as well as the federal structure of decision-making within our uh, polity. But uh, having come to the mention of 1991 as really the point of origin for the uh, so-called economic reforms, when the new industrial policy was announced in India, there was also a template of BIPAs. BIPAs mean bilateral investment protection and promotion agreements. That was the first generation of bilateral investment agreements that the government of India also framed. These were not so much in the news. They were almost 80 plus such PIPAs that uh, along with its domestic changes uh, on the economic front, uh, please stay on slide one. Uh, along with the changes in the industrial policy and the economic reforms that were rolled out domestically, we also started entering into these PIPAs. But at the same time, we also, uh, 1992, the Parliament of India passed the Foreign Trade Act, and that's the main legislation, domestic legislation, through which we, the Directorate General of Foreign Trade and the Ministry of Commerce and Industry engages with how we will do trade, on what tariff lines, etc., and within that, every five years, an exim policy, which is the export-import policy, is also notified. So every five years, we recalibrate that. And depending on the circumstances of trade deficits and what you want to put on a negative list or a sensitive list, uh, items on which you do not want to drop your uh, custom duties, etc., those are then notified under this legislation. And that's important to keep a track on the amendments that happen both in the Act the Foreign Trade Act, as well as the exim policy that is notified every five years. Uh, in, because of the COVID, incidentally, the 2015 to 2020 exim policy has been extend, was extended till September 2021. And so this is also a time when the new exim policy for the next five years is going to be announced. 
But coming to 1995 and things that are happening in the WTO is something that Ronja has already flagged for us all. But in the meantime, outside of that, uh, India was also getting into some of its very first, first generation free trade agreements. Now, I think it's important to recognize that the WTO itself is a free trade agreement, but there's a lot of language on development and development interests, particularly of developing countries and the manner in which the fundamental principle of special and differential treatment for developing countries and LDCs in terms of having an extended timeline to implement and be in compliance with the WTO agreements, to get technical assistance as a matter of right from the WTO and from other uh, advanced countries. All of these were rights given to the developing countries within the WTO framework. But outside of that, uh, because these special rights given to developing countries are seen as, um, you know, there's a lot of resistance from the developed world on that, particularly more recently. Uh, there have been movements by the government of India to negotiate South-South uh, free trade agreements and bilateral economic relations. And one of the very first was 1998, which was an India-Sri Lanka free trade agreement. But it was only in 2003 that India negotiated an economic agreement with ASEAN. ASEAN, as you know, is, a, is the Southeast Asian group of 20, 10 countries. And, uh, it, and, and the 2003 agreement is seen as the forerunner of what came to be the TIG, which is the Trade in Goods Agreement that India eventually negotiated with ASEAN in 2009. And I've showed uh, that uh, to you on the timeline on the screen. But what is considered as India's first free trade agreement is the India-Singapore SICA, which is the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement. So when we're talking about FTAs, uh, there, are, there are different forms that these FTA take. And uh, the, in the WTO language, these are also called RTAs, Regional uh, Trade Agreements. And ironically, WTO itself has been setting up a tracker to keep track of the different regional trade agreements because the original justification given for the WTO was that there must be one place and one venue globally where all the governments can come and negotiate global trade rules because you have country A negotiating with country B, then country B signing a trade agreement with country C and country C signing a different trade agreement with country A. And so you have this mishmash of uh, different rules, different standards and different tariff uh, reductions uh, in, in different bilateral or plurilateral agreements or regional agreements. But uh, the justification given for WTO was that we bring all the countries of the world onto one table and recognizing their differences, we also give special uh, treatment and particular rights to developing countries and LDCs. But that is not something that uh, was palatable to a lot of uh, the uh, developed world as well as the corporations that they, uh, they, they nurture. And therefore you had this tendency 
for the developed world to also parallelly outside of the WTO continue to negotiate uh, North-South and North-North uh, agreements. And we see a reflection of that uh, in also the joint uh, statement and joint initiatives that are being JSIs that are being taken in the WTO is to uh, get a smaller group of countries into a negotiating mode and in a plurilateral or a bilateral form, and then multilateralize it by trying and bringing it back into the WTO. So, and the FTAs and mega regional FTAs is what we've seen more recently, is one such tendency to try and gain traction and have progress on issues uh, out which corporations would like to have rules on uh, in the WTO. And might I flag that, you know, at one level, we are saying that this is free trade, mukt vyapar, in, in, a, in a global uh, open market, which is khulla bazaar. But some of these trade rules can be so restrictive. For instance, the intellectual property rights agreement trips that uh, Ronja mentioned actually limits and gives exclusive rights to an IPR holder uh, for 20 years, for instance. And so that puts restrictions on other uh, legitimate uses, whether in public interest or, for instance, for farmers' freedoms with, with respect to um, you know, patented seeds and proprietary technologies in agriculture or for uh, the challenge it poses to public health with, uh, uh, with uh, not only patents and high uh, IP rules, but also data exclusivity requirements for drugs and pharmaceuticals. So at one level, you're saying this is free trade and you want to free it from what? You want to free it through FTA rules uh, and provisions and commitments, legally binding time-bound commitments on governments to free the trade from government regulation. And it's really about releasing the animal spirits of capitalism that you design and you try and achieve that to WTO. But in WTO, one of the process issues is that decisions can't be taken without consensus. But in an FTA uh, with unequal partners, you can actually arm twist your bilateral uh, trade partner uh, and put conditionalities, for instance, one of the early generation bilateral arrangements between US and Sri Lanka uh, or United States trade representatives and Vietnam is that they had a high quality free trade agreement at a bilateral level, forcing them to uh, agree on higher levels of IPR protection for technology coming from US which is at a higher demand than what WTO asks these uh, member countries to. So essentially, free trade agreements are about a WTO plus uh, trading system. But I think what's important to trace is that uh, we not only started negotiating these free trade agreements, which were the first generation free trade agreements, but in 2011, things really came to head when multinational corporations getting the benefit of bilateral investment treaties started suing the government of India uh, to protect their investor rights. And there's a host, particularly in 2011, with the white industries uh, suing the government of India for damages uh, under the uh, India-Australia 
bilateral investment treaties really brought this issue to the fore that how bilateral investment treaties uh, were granting investor protection rights and limiting um, the uh, space for governments to regulate uh, investors, particularly in public interest. And so you had a host of cases then following by Vodafone, by Kane Energy, by Telenor, by Nissan, many of these uh, MNCs getting the power from these bilateral investment treaties and provisions therein, which says that, you know, in case a government make passes a law or any of your court rulings go against it, or any executive decisions like to cancel licenses for the spectrum or telecommunications, then we will sue you through arbitration uh, and through private arbitration. Uh, because as you know, in the WTO, you do have a dispute settlement body, but in free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties, there are no such global fora that you can go to for settling a dispute. And that's why one of the risks of FTAs and bilateral investment treaties is not only the extent uh, the, and the range of issues that they cover and the depth that they go into and the extent of policy space that they, uh, they limit, but also the dispute settlement that if there is a problem that you run into in one of these agreements, these can have repercussions with having very expensive private arbitration tribunals deciding, uh, and this is the first time that in international law, through such FTAs and BITs, if they have what are called investor state uh, settlement, uh, dispute settlement mechanism, ISDS, uh, the power has been given to MNCs to actually sue governments directly and claim several uh, million dollars of damages. And so some of these cases are still pending against the government of India. Uh, which pose a certain risk. And that's why in uh, 2015, the Government of India's Ministry of External Affairs brought out a template for itself that this will be a model bilateral trade and investment agreement in which, apart from defining what all gets covered uh, under the definition of investment when foreign or even domestic investors uh, put in money or set up an enterprise or seek an IPR, but also that when disputes happen, you cannot bypass the domestic courts before setting up such uh, arbitration tribunals for dispute settlement. But this is still to be tested because we haven't still used this model BTIA to negotiate any new bilateral trade and investment agreements, even though we have this model, but how much we will insist upon it when we enter into a new generation of bits is something to be seen, whether that is going to be a red line, or it is a common minimum, or the government will be willing to negotiate out some of the and dilute some of the provisions of this model is something to be seen. And it also depends on the power of the partner that you're negotiating with. Uh, I'd also like to flag that when we look at India's uh, FTAs and, uh, and the fact that it was a reluctant uh, FTA partner that it wasn't getting into too many bilateral free trade agreements or FTAs after it had joined the WTO. That position has changed since the last two, three years. Uh, and there are several uh, motivations for that. But I think it's also important to locate and situate 
India's FTA strategy in what is generally happening around mega regional free trade agreements that have also emerged in the last two, three years in the world. And one of the most notable is the CPTPP, which is also called the Trans-Pacific Partnership 11. It was originally TPP-12 with the, the U.S. government also being a part of it. But under the then U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, uh, U.S. exited from that. And uh, it, it, the background was also that because China was part of this, uh, they were also into trade wars uh, with uh, the U.S.-China that time. And uh, also India was not, is not a part of the CPTPP. But what this was, is a, was another generation of a mega regional free trade agreement to harmonize and bring together trading partners within the Asia-Pacific region and the Pacific Rim. Uh, likewise, even in Africa, in May 2019, what was negotiated Africa-wide was an Africa continental free trade agreement. So there was this tendency of regionalized, uh, you know, what uh, WTO in WTO language is called RTAs, regional uh, trade agreements, uh, which are then notified and permitted by the WTO under WTO rules. And in fact, 2009 onwards, WTO also set up its own tracker. Uh, to keep track of these regional trade agreements. So the irony is that the WTO was set up to kind of curb the tendency to have bilateral and RTAs, but uh, the number of RTAs or FTAs or bits have not gone down. Uh, and uh, there has been this trend to have these mega regional free trade agreements. But I think what was notable and already been flagged is that India withdrew from the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in November 2019. And that was because there were some very key sectoral concerns that uh, agricultural trade would be impacted, that public health uh, would take a hit because of the kind of uh, higher IP requirements that RCEP wanted. Also, that manufactured goods would also face competition uh, from other merchandise exporting countries such as China and get greater access to India's uh, large market. And uh, the kind of tariff liberalization that RCEP required from day one of the RCEP coming into force, it is anticipated now that RCEP will come into force uh, early next year after a, a, a minimum number of 10 out of the 15 uh, participating, RCEP participating countries, RCEP, R, RCPs will be, uh, would have ratified it. And, uh, but this reluctance to uh, join RCEP was also motivated by the extent of uh, public outrage and the, the kind of popular protests that happened countrywide on RCEP, which could not be ignored. So they were not only internal concerns by the government on what kind of uh, arrangement RCEP would put India into, particularly with countries like China, which it, with, with, it does not have an existing uh, free trade agreements and the kind of tariff cuts it will require. But like I said, on, on, on services, on trade, on intellectual property, on goods trade, on investor protection, uh, there were several concerns which uh, India uh, that time was not ready to commit to. So political decision was taken uh, largely also by the kind of public pressure. 
And by that time, we understand that uh, COVID was also beginning to rear its head uh, in the world. That will take me to the second slide, uh, Sonal, please. And so now lo let's look at the next phase since the last uh, couple of months. While the lockdown was uh, underway, there has been a rethink in the strategy that India has now taking towards uh, free trade agreements. And uh, I'll send you a link here in the chat on the new, the whole list of new free trade agreements that India is currently being negotiating with uh, uh, several countries. Uh, particularly in the last year, though it looked quite uh, quiet, but uh, there have been developments, even other geopolitical developments that are important to understand. For instance, the Brexit that uh, came into force in January of 2020, which meant that uh, India would and UK were both willing to negotiate a free trade agreement on a bilateral level. Earlier, the United Kingdom was part of the EU, the 28 uh, member countries of the European Union, which itself is an economic and trading bloc. Uh, 2007 onwards, India was also negotiating a proposed bilateral trade and investment agreement with the European Union. It uh, went cold in 2013, again, because there was a lot of uh, uh, public uh, protests. Uh, also because EU would have demanded much higher standards uh, and trade liberalization as well as intellectual property standards much higher than the World Trade Organization. There were also several civil society processes like the uh, right to food and, and the human rights impact assessment of such a proposed bilateral investment and trade agreement between the EU. But the government of India has now uh, expressed its interest to revive the negotiations with the uh, EU for such a proposed bilateral trade and investment agreement. So you have now UK uh, process bilaterally as well as separately with the EU. We are also uh, in negotiations with what is called EFTA, the European countries like Norway, Iceland, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, which are outside of the EU. Uh, which are called EFTA, the European Free Trade Agreement Association. We are also uh, attempting a free trade agreement with them. And like the list that I've shown you on slide two, there are several negotiations that India is currently interested in with Australia, with Canada, a comprehensive economic partnership agreement and what is called FIPA a foreign investor protection agreement uh, with uh, the UAE and also like uh, has been flagged for a long time, the US-India uh, free trade agreement or possible bilateral investment treaty. So, and but the concern is that th this phase of, you know, uh, ambition and aspiration to have these free trade agreements after its initial slow start and also with reluctance to get into FTA is something as a matter of concern. Also because these new uh, 
uh, you know, FTAs and the list of countries are all essentially the West and quite advanced and developed economies, which would place much higher demands on India in terms of compliance, which will take us well beyond what WTO asks us. And this would mean that there would be limits and restrictions and further restrictions on domestic policy space. So uh, I've uh, tried to present the timeline, but I think in terms of strategy, what do we do about it? This was something that even the Forum for Trade Justice, which has uh, consistently since 2009, flagged the concerns from civil society and people's movements on why we are concerned about free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties. So the experience from that and the evidence that people's groups themselves put on the table uh, makes us quite skeptic about these uh, uh, developments towards such free trade agreements. And in terms of strategy, and what do we do about this? I think it's about asking and answering three questions of why do we need free trade agreements when uh, the evidence on the ground shows that India has not been able to get the benefits or harness uh, what are the intended benefits uh, and presented as, as a win-win for us, because it also requires that you have domestic reforms and a mechanism by which you harness and uh, the benefits of the agreement, as well as be able to redistribute that wealth. Also, we're not doing very well on uh, other indices, such as uh, social and ecological, uh, particularly, uh, you know, like the Human Development Index, the Hunger Index, these are things that uh, need certain uh, priority uh, action from governments, whether it's the central or the state governments, and FTAs go right against that in, on a collision course with that. So it's a question of raising why we need such FTAs. Then how we negotiate them? The next question is, uh, there are no processes, and consistently even the forum has been raising that there is no public disclosure, and that is a major concern for civil society across the region, not only in India. You may know that Article 253 of the Constitution of India gives Parliament the power to negotiate, uh, to make laws for implementing any treaty agreement or convention that the country has negotiated through on the executive track. But this has to be in consultation with state governments and with uh, a wider public consultation because we see that oftentimes it is the uh, official talks are usually with big uh, businesses and industry houses and often the, the, the constituency which was going to be impacted on the ground whether it's the farmers or the fishers or women's groups or patient uh, collectives uh, their concerns are not internalized in these free trade agreements and often the lack of transparency is questioned by civil society saying, if these agreements are so good and beneficial for us, why are they so untransparent? Why aren't they made open? Because unless and until even the draft texts are made publicly available, civil society cannot meaningfully engage and influence uh, the kind of um, free trade or bilateral investment treaty that the government would enter into. So that's about how. And our demand has been that we don't need these secret deals. This process has to be opened up. And you also have to institutionalize a process that 
this could also should also be they should also be put to parliament scrutiny if and when india would enter into a bilateral trade and investment agreement with eu the european member countries would have to get it ratified by their respective parliaments but we don't have such kind of a process in india as of now and in fact you may recall even when the wto was signed on uh, and the executive act was done making india a member of the wto there were several state governments such as rajasthan tamil nadu at that time that filed a case in the supreme court of india challenging the government's decision to uh, enter into such a wide ranging trade agreement without consultation with state governments considering that many of these subjects like agriculture fall on the state list so there is a constitutional challenge and we need to address the processes and institutionalize a process by which these can be put to scrutiny and through which public consultation can meaningfully happen and another the last question i ask in terms of strategy is whom do we enter who do we engage with on free trade agreements is it more beneficial to have a south south arrangement we have some experiences with other uh, groupings whether it's the ipsa or the sarc or the safta or even the asean india for which there have already been there has been some experience and that's why uh, entering into uh, free trade agreements with developed countries and with what is the west with much much higher standards is a matter of serious concern uh, also uh, the popular the, uh, demand that has been made by civil society is that there must be not exposed but uh, ex ante assessments of these trade agreements before they are entered into and signed on all i can say is i think we need to vaccinate ourselves and build immunity against the new generation like you have new variants of viri uh, which are a matter of concern there are new generation of fta's which we need to uh, vaccinate ourselves against